Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 16. As you turn there, just a reminder for those of you who are new or relatively new to our church, we'd love to join you this this Friday for our, our newcomer's dinner and information about that in your bulletin, and you can indicate that. You can send us an email, let us know you're coming. We'd love to be able to spend the time with you and get to know you better. If you haven't attended it, maybe you've been attending here a little bit. If you haven't attended one, you say, boy, am I eligible? Yes, yes, you are. We'd love to love to have you and have you participate in that so that we can just spend some, some time of fellowship. It can be kind of hard to get to know people as in a, in a church this size and kind of the hustle and bustle of a Sunday morning, so this provides a great opportunity, and, and we'd love for you to take advantage of that and uh, be able to do some time of, of fellowship together. Well, Luke chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 31, and Lord willing, finishing up uh, Luke chapter 16 this morning. And if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, again, beginning in verse 19. Jesus is speaking. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good, your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You may be seated, may our hearts be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. And let's pray that God would continue to bless our, our time of worship this morning. And Father, we do ask that of you. We would ask that you would bless this time of worship, that it would be a time in which you are honored and you are glorified, you are pleased in us. We pray that you would cause our hearts to understand you, you would cause our hearts to, to pursue you, to turn from those things that would cause us to not know you and, and to pursue those things that will lead us ever closer to you. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. In the movie... Pirates of the Caribbean, the captain, the pirate captain Jack Sparrow has a, a compass and this compass appears to be broken for the needle of the compass doesn't point due north. And throughout the movie this is noted and 
And yet, throughout the movie, the Captain Jack Sparrow continues to consult this, this compass whose needle doesn't point north. And there's one scene in the movie where the one character is asking, they're in the storm, and the captain is looking at his compass and steering the ship accordingly. And, and one character asks another, how can we sail to an island that nobody can find using a, a compass that doesn't work? And the reply of his shipmate is, I, the compass doesn't point north, but we're not trying to find north, are we? <laughs> That's my pirate voice. <laughs> I will keep my day job. And it turns out that this, this compass, it, it doesn't point north, it points one towards one's greatest heart's desire. I love that picture a compass whose needle points one towards one's greatest heart's desire. Imagine this morning that I placed a compass in your hand, and, and this compass needle would, would direct you toward whatever your heart desired the most. As you held that compass in your hand, where would it take you? Where would it lead you this morning as you began to pursue your heart's desire? Where would your termination point be? Maybe for some of you, you'd walk out of here this morning and that, that compass would take you back to work. And it would help you pursue prestige in your company and, and receive the accolades of your peers. That's where the compass uh, needle would point for you. Other people, maybe that needle would, would take you on, on vacation to a, a, a luxury resort. Maybe some people would take you to the, to, to the bank and help you pursue riches and, and finances. Maybe some people, it, it would take you to your home. Maybe it would take some of you to a nicer home, to a, to a nicer car. Uh, maybe some of you would, would stay here. I don't know. Listen to the end of the sermon. That's your greatest heart's desire. Where would that needle point you? Where would it take you? What would the termination point be as you pursued what your heart desired most? In Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, we see the termination point for the one who pursues materialism. As we look at Luke 16, 19 through 31, we see that the terminal point for a person who pursues material things in this life, the terminal point is separation from God for eternity. That's where a life of pursuit of material things leads one. Eternal separation from our Heavenly Father. Eternal torment. Let me remind you where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, we've, as we started chapter 16, Jesus has been talking to his disciples at the very beginning of Luke 16, and he was talking to them about this, this parable of a dishonest steward. And as he told them this parable, he, he talks about using material things in a wise way for eternal purposes. And as we come and look at verse 13, he concludes the parable with several applications. Verse 13 kind of summing up what he's trying to help them understand. No servant, he says, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so Jesus tells his disciples, look, you need to understand you can't simultaneously have two heart's desires that you're pursuing. You're either going to pursue God or you're going to pursue money. You, you can't pursue both things. Now, the Pharisees hear Jesus say this to his disciples, and as they hear this, they respond not with hearts of belief, but they respond with ridicule. Remember? 
verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all those, these things, and they ridiculed them. Now, in response to their ridicule, Jesus confronts them with their lack of submission to God's authoritative word. He tells them, look, you guys are those who desire to justify yourselves. Your authority is not God's word. You, you disregard what God said through the law and the prophets. Your heart desires to justify itself. And he gives them the example of divorce and, and remarriage. He talks to them about God's design for marriage and for sexuality, in, in a sense here. And he says, you have rejected what God's authoritative word says concerning marriage. And in desire to justify yourself, you've placed your own desires above the authority of God's word. And through your traditions, you've effectively undermined what God said concerning marriage. And now, in verses 19 through 31, he returns to the issue of materialism. And what he's going to show them in this parable, it, it, it's just a, a, he blasts them. He blasts their, their hearts that believe that one can pursue both God and material things. He's going to show them beyond a shadow of doubt that a heart cannot simultaneously pursue both things. A person must make a decision whether to pursue God or to pursue the things of this world. One's heart cannot simultaneously pursue both. Now, as we turn to this parable in verses 19 through 31, let me just kind of say a, a couple things ab about this parable. Uh, sometimes uh, people take this parable and they try to get a, a full-fledged uh, theology of hell and the afterlife from this parable. I don't believe one can do that from this story. Jesus' intention here is not to lay out all the details of Hades, not to lay out all the details of an afterlife. This, this is a story, a parable that Jesus is, is teaching them, to, to teach them something about material possessions in the heart that pursues materialism. In fact, there are some aspects of this parable as it describes hell, as it describes Hades, that are not in keeping with, with uh what, what's actually going to take place there. Here's how John MacArthur puts it. He says, this is a story that's intended to basically identify and forcefully and indelibly and memorably give us a spiritual truth of great significance. And that is exactly what this story does. The circumstances of the story itself indicate that it can't be a, a true story. It's imaginary. In other words, he talks about how, you know, you can't see into heaven from hell. You can't communicate between heaven and hell. That's, that's just an element of the story. Lazarus is taken by angels into heaven. That's not how a person really enters into the, the presence of God. And this is a story, he says, and I agree with this, to convey a point. It's a wonderfully rich way to convey important spiritual truth. And so there's a literal heaven, yes, there's a literal hell, yes, but, but this story isn't describing those in great detail. It's kind of giving us some, some truths that help us understand Jesus' point about material possessions and the heart that pursues materialism. In fact, the, the main truth that I believe that we should grasp as we look at this parable is that uh, materialism, the pursuit of materialism, causes us to abuse the poor and condemn our own souls. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to flee materialism. To flee materialism. Jesus has told the Pharisees, you cannot pursue both God and money. 
The Pharisees have ridiculed that idea. And what Jesus is going to say, look, the heart that pursues materialism is going to pursue materialism. And as, as you're here at this, this point in life and you decide whether to pursue God or pursue, pursue materialism, as you begin to pursue materialism, your life is going to be characterized by certain, certain uh, things. As you decide at a certain point in your life to pursue God, your life is going to be characterized by certain things as well, such as a generosity toward those who are in need. So uh, let's look at the story. Let's look at the story of the La- of Lazarus and the rich man, and then let's draw some principles from it as as we come to the conclusion of the story. The story begins in verse 19, and it says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And so Jesus introduces us first to a rich materialist. Uh, he's a materialist in the sense that he loves material things. He loves both the, the physical and the sensual things in life. He's a, a materialist person. Now, you don't have to be a rich person to be materialist. Not all materialists are wealthy, but this person is a person who happens to be wealthy and simultaneously is a materialist, loving the material things in life. How do we know that? Well, first of all, Jesus tells us that he's one who has this, this, these garments that are First of all, a garment of fine linen. This would have been a, a garment that was worn kind of on the, the inner part of one's person. And this would have been taken from some wool that had been folded and put it in a basin and, and some clay had been put in there with it. And the clay would draw the oils and the impurities out of the wool. And so the, the wool that was left over would have been a very white uh, wool that could be produced that could produce these these fine linens and this undergarment that this person would wear would have been just gleaming white whiter than white it would just be this this beautiful piece of clothing incredibly expensive the robe that he wears is is made of from this perp that it's made and, and put in this purple dye, and so this would have been a very valuable robe for a person to wear as well. And so the rich man is wearing these clothings that, that scream status. One of these items of clothing alone would have screamed status. He's wearing them both together. He's the elite of the elite. But he's not just a person. He's not just a person who's pursuing material things in the, the physical sense, the things that one can actually handle and, and hold and, and, and said to have possession of. He's also a sensualist. He, he loves to, to eat and to taste, to touch, to, to feel. It says that he feasted sumptuously every day. Remember in Luke 15, when we looked at the story of the prodigal son, and his dad is a very wealthy person, and his son comes home, the, the dad decides to have this, this great feast, and so he has this, this big feast and invites people. Uh, it was a special occasion. That's kind of how the, the father in the story, the parable of the, of the prodigal son handled this. This guy, this materialist, has a big feast every day. He, he gouges himself sumptuously on these, this food on a daily basis. He's a materialist. He loves the physical things that he can handle, that he can, can say, these are mine. He loves the sensual things, the, the gluttony of this life as well. Uh, this past week, the, the family and I watched a, a uh, talk by a man named Benjamin Wallace. Benjamin Wallace is a writer for uh, GQ, and he spoke at a TED conference in 2008, right before the, the economy began to, the bottom fell out of the economy. And he asked this question in the talk. He said, why do people spend crazy amounts of money on, on things. 
And so he said that what he decided to do was he decided to, with the uh, financial backing of his magazine, he decided to enjoy the finer things in life in several different categories. And he said it was exhausting. No one felt very bad for him when he said that, but uh, he said it was exhausting. For example, he would eat a, a Kobe steak, $160 for an eight-ounce steak. He, he had these white truffles that cost $120 a piece, and, and he said it wasn't the actual taste of the truffles that make them so expensive. It's as you, as you shave them onto your food, it's the aroma, and, and smelling that aroma for about 10 seconds is what makes these truffles so valuable, and then you've got to do something with them, but they're not that tasty. He said that uh, he toured this uh, suite in Manhattan, this hotel suite that cost $30,000 a night. It was 4,300 square feet. It came with a Rolls-Royce and driver, a, a wine cellar. He uh, drove around in a $1.5 million car. He said it, it drove well, but you know, it was no time-traveling DeLorean, but uh, he, he still drove around this car. He said he, he uh, wore these pair of jeans, $800 a pair, came from hand-picked organic Zimbabwean cotton, hand-dipped in dye 24 times. He enjoyed all these, these finer things in life. He said there was a, a toilet that cost $5,600 that had an MP3 player and was like his own medical center. That seemed worth it. I don't know. Uh, some of these things seem silly, he said it was interesting, uh, as, as scientists have explored the human brain and, and watched different areas of the brain respond to, to physical things in life, they've said that it's not necessarily the things themselves that, that bring people pleasure. Like a fine glass of wine compared to another glass of wine, it's, it's not the actual wine that, that causes the, the pleasure centers in the brain to react. It's sometimes it's simply knowing that one is more valuable than the other that causes the pleasure. In other words, a, a person holds a pair of jeans in their hand and just knowing that these are more valuable than another pair of jeans and they now own them causes them pleasure. I was talking to my, the guy at the, the U.S. cellular store, the franchise owner, and I, I bought a, a new phone this past week and uh, there was this phone that was in black and there was a phone just like it, the same brand in, in white. And the white phone costs $20 more than this phone. I said, why, why are you charging $20 more for that phone? He said, just because I can. He said, I, I used to charge the same price for them. I raised the price on the white one, and sales have skyrocketed. I bought the black phone, obviously. The rich man is a materialist. And he pursues the finer things in life. He feasts sumptuously. He wears the fine clothing. And you know what? It's an exhausting process. Pursuing the finer things in life, pursuing the, the, the sensual things in life, can be an exhausting, time-consuming task. And as a person commits to a life of materialism, they're committing to spending time pursuing material things. Jesus introduces us next to a man named Lazarus. And here's the wealthy man who's enjoying his food, he's enjoying his clothing that he wears on a daily basis, he's living the, the life, and he has literally sealed himself off 
from the rest of the world. There's a, a gate, and Jesus lays Lazarus, again, literally and figuratively, at, at Lazarus, at the rich man's gate. And what does Jesus tell us about the poor man, about Lazarus? He says that at the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and, and Lazarus was covered with sores, and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In this culture, what's happening is, is the rich man is enjoying these, these sumptuous feasts on a daily basis. And, and what he would do is he and those who were with him would, would just gouge on all this food and, and the oils and stuff would get on their hands. And he had to, there were no paper napkins back then. And so they would take some bread and they'd, they'd wipe the oils off of their hands and then they'd throw them underneath the table. Now this is kind of a disgusting picture. It's what Jesus is saying happened here. And then the dogs in the rich man's house come and, and they eat the scraps that are underneath the table, these, these dirty napkin bread. And Lazarus would have loved to just eaten the bread that had wiped off the fingers of the rich man. But instead, the dogs eat those, and, and not only that, no, this is gross, not only that, the dogs, after eating the bread that Lazarus would have loved to eat, the rich man sends his dogs outside, and they go outside, they go out the gates of the rich man, and they begin to continue their meal by, by eating the, the, the ooze off the, the Lazarus' sores. It's disgusting, it's degrading. The rich man is seemingly completely unaware of his obligation to care for Lazarus. He shouldn't have been. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, says, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. And then listen to this line that Isaiah tells those who are wealthy. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. What does that mean, the, the spoil of the poor is in your houses? What it means is that what you have in your houses right now are those things that could have been used to, to help the poor. The poor are out there, and, and you've got these great houses, and, and the poor, what the poor could have had is, is in your home. In Isaiah 5, verse 8, Isaiah says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. In other words, woe to those who are so wealthy that they have one home, and, and now they, they add a second home. Who have one field, and now own another field. In other words, there's this pursuit of material things that causes them to pursue the material things instead of helping with those who are in need. The rich man insulates himself from Lazarus and is unaware of his moral obligation to meet Lazarus's physical needs. The presence of Lazarus at the gate of the rich man is an indictment on the rich man. The story goes on. It could have ended there, right, from our perspective. The story could have ended right there. That's where we see the story end in our world today. Here's wealthy people, here's poor people, and, and that's how life goes. 
But Jesus goes behind the story, after life. He said, the poor man died, verse 25, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Here we see the great reversal. The high are made low, and the low are made high. It's something we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, we see that God brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. Remember in the Sermon on the Plain, we saw kingdom ethics, and what do we see about kingdom ethics? We saw those who are, are hungry now are going to be full later. We saw that those who weep now are going to, to laugh later. We saw those who laugh now are going to weep later. We saw those who are full now are going to be hungry later. There's this, this coming great reversal when those who have pursued the things of this world are going to find themselves impoverished, and those who have been impoverished in this world, as they haven't loved the things of this world, are going to be exalted. There's this, this coming great reversal. Lazarus, who has not pursued the things of this world or enjoyed the things of this world, enters a reversal. He's carried to Abraham's side. He, he experiences the great eschatological hope of, of all of Israel, being in, in the presence of Abraham and the forefathers and, and, and being in, in, in this, this time of celebration. The rich man also encounters a reversal. He goes from feasting sumptuously, dressed in fine linen and, and purple, and goes into this place where there is eternal torment. And I told you that not all the details, I believe, of this parable are, are literal, yet we know that there is a place of, of literal torment for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, in obedience to God. We see that in the book of, of Revelation describes this, this coming time of, of torment. Verse, uh, Revelation 20, uh, verse 15, talks about the sea giving up their dead and, and, and those who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It's the second death, the lake of fire. Uh, 21.8 of Revelation says, As the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the, the second death. And we see throughout Scripture this is a, an eternal death. It continues. Lazarus and the rich man encounter the, the great reversal. This past us, few months, we were on a car trip with the kids, and we're, we listened to these, these CDs called Story of the World, and kind of tell about great events through human history, and we listened to the story of Napoleon, and, and I, we were just kind of struck by this, this, this uh, so-called Emperor Napoleon, who, who goes from, from having this, this empire at his, at his fingertips, he's about to, to do these majestic things, and then the, the height of his power, he, he's defeated and, and has to abdicate, and, and then he comes back, and for 100 days, he's on the top of the world again, and then, then he has to, he's set, sent into exile again. I was reading this poem by uh, Lord Byron. Lord Byron had held up Napoleon as, as a hero, and, 
was greatly saddened whenever Napoleon decided to abdicate. And, and he wrote this right after the, Napoleon's first exile. He says, "'Tis done." He's talking about this, this reversal that Napoleon experiences. "'Tis done, but yesterday a king, and armed with kings to strive, and now thou art a nameless thing, so abject, yet alive." He talks about this, this uh, who he was and now who he is now. He says, the desolator desolate, the victor overthrown, the arbiter of others' fate a supplicant for his own. In other words, before those came, people came to Napoleon to decide what their fate would be, and he would decide, and, and now he's, he's begging for his own life. An amazing reversal that takes place. And there have been amazing reversals that have taken place throughout famous lives, throughout history, but, but nothing compares to the reversal that takes place in eternity. And Jesus kind of pulls the veil back and says, look, there's going to be this great reversal. Those who have pursued material things now are going to be those who are, who are beggars in eternity. And we see also in the story, the status is, is fixed. Once this reversal takes place, there's nothing that a person can do to, to change it. Lazarus is, is beseeched, Abraham is beseeched on the part of the rich man for Lazarus to come help him. And then Abraham says this in verse 25 of Luke 16. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. In other words, there's, there's a sense of justice to what's taken place. He goes on. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And, and so he says, in other words, this is, this is just, this is a, a just response for the way that you've lived your life. Furthermore, even if we desired to, to help you, we couldn't. And then we also see, as Abraham continues to talk, that apart from a heart-changing transformation in one's physical life, during one's earthly life, one cannot change one's eternal destiny. Listen to what he says. The rich man says, okay, well, if, if that's the case, if, if, if there's nothing you can do for me now, how about this, verse 27? Send Lazarus to my father's house. Now, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that the rich man, even in death, has kind of this attitude that, Lazarus can, can do things for him, that he's still kind of a little bit above Lazarus. He, he still doesn't quite understand the reality of the reversal. He says, then I, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham says, look, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he says, no, 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 that's not enough. Send them someone from the dead. And then Abraham says these these words that should convict each of us. Verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. He's saying, if you haven't listened to God's word, spoken through the law and the prophets, a, a word that is not able to be altered, nothing is going to convince you. God's word in and of itself should be sufficient to convict you of your need to change and respond 
and repentance. It's what he said in earlier in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, the good news of the kingdom has been preached. In other words, you've heard what God's word says, and you Pharisees have already rejected. There's a, a fixed nature of what a person decides to do that affects them for eternity. Right now, during our, our physical lives, we're, we're at a point where we can decide which path to choose. One path, one, one heart's desire is to say, look, I'm, I love the things of this world. I love the, the sensual things of this world. I love, I love uh, filling my, my belly. I, I love uh, sexual immorality. I, I love the things that I can feel and smell and, and sense and, and be alive. I, I desire those things, and that's the path that I'm going to choose. And a person that decides to, to go on that path, Jesus is saying, it will be evident in their lives. The sensualist, the physical materialist is going to do things that indicate they love this world, and so their attention, as one pursues physical material pleasures, the way that they treat others is, is going to evidence that. On the other hand, a person could say, uh, I, I am going to, to love God. And as a person makes that their decision to pursue God, to t find their pleasure in God, for God to be their heart's desire, their life is going to reflect that as well. There are two paths that lie open to a person, and the Pharisees have ridiculed the idea that a person can't love God and money, and Jesus in this parable says, look, it's, it's a done deal. You have to make a decision. You must make a choice. Now, here's, here's what I want you to grasp as well. We've been spending the last four weeks talking about the biblical design for marriage and sexuality, right? And we said the problem with the Pharisees was, here's God's design for marriage and for sexuality, and they rejected it. And most of us in this room have a pretty good sense, I believe, about what deviating from God's design for sexuality looks like. We can say, yeah, yeah, immorality is wrong. Um, I, I may struggle with it, but I know, I, know what, I know where the line is. I know what's wrong. Divorce is wrong. I, I know these things are wrong. But notice this. Jesus is also saying that the materialist rejects God's authoritative word. And I, I've mentioned many times that I think those last, these last four weeks have, have been some very difficult messages, and, and I think they have been because of the topics they deal with. But in some ways, this may even be a more difficult message because our hearts may be a little harder in this area. Our hearts may have become hardened in this area of materialism. Yeah, I, I know what sexual immorality looks like in verse 18 of chapter 16 when Jesus says this is the design for marriage and, and this is what adultery looks like. I get it. Now, what does it look like to be a materialist? That's the other guy. The other guy is the guy that struggles with materialism. God's word concerning our hearts is very clear. You cannot simultaneously love the things of this world and love God. Now, let me give you some principles that may help you 
as you think about applying this. Number one, number one, the one who pursues materialism abuses the poor. The one who pursues materialism abuses the poor. Remember those examples I gave from Benjamin Wallace's talk, the the pursuit of these physical, pleasurable things. It's impossible to pursue with a vigor the material things of this world and at the same time have a love for those who are your neighbor. In other words, it's not wrong to have material things. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, But the heart that says, I'm going to pursue these material things, I'm going to be a materialist, cannot simultaneously love those who are poor. Remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 3. We looked at this already. In Isaiah chapter 3, he talks about the spoil of the poor is in your homes. As you have pursued material things, you've, you've put the poor person outside your gate. Lazarus is laying at the gate of the rich man. The rich man is insulated from him. The person who pursues material things doesn't have the time or the heart inclination to consider the needs of the impoverished. And as you pursue material things, it causes you to be unaware of the needs of the poor and abuse them. My point is that you are morally culpable for how the poor are treated. Amos 5.11 says, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain for him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, who turn aside the needy in the gate. There's a New York Times article that came out uh, several years ago. It was talking about a, a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And it, it was, the article mentioned how those who are in wealthy uh, income tax brackets give much less than those who are poor. Now, both of these statistics, I think, are a little sad, but it said that those who earn less than $25,000 a year give away an average of 4.2% of their incomes, while those earning more than 75000 give away 2.7%. Now, I believe both those numbers are, are sadly, sadly low. I, I believe in our culture to even, uh, you know, I, I think tithing, giving away 10% of one's income is, is, a, is a starting place in our economic situation. But anyway, he goes on and he talks about why this is in the article. And he talks about something called the compassion deficit, the inability to empathetically relate to others' needs. Those who are wealthy have lost their ability to see the the needs of other people in our culture. And I believe that's absolutely true. As we pursue material things, our awareness of our compassion for those in need diminishes. Second principle here, not only does the one who pursues materialism abuse the poor, number two, the one who abuses the poor condemns his own soul or her own soul. The one who pursues materialism is going to inevitably abuse the poor as one pursues materialism. But notice this too, the one who abuses the poor condemns his own soul. Remember when we studied Luke chapter 10, story of the Good Samaritan, what did we see? We saw that one of the characteristics of one who has eternal life is that they love God and they love who? Their neighbor. And who is their neighbor? There's an unlimited concept of who one's neighbor is. 
And so the one who has decided to pursue a life of materialism has made a commitment to abuse the poor, or a commitment that ends in abusing the poor, and that, and that action indicates a heart that has not been transformed by the gospel. In fact, notice that point very carefully. We're not saying that works save a person. In other words, uh, giving all your money away to the poor doesn't earn your salvation. But we're saying that a person whose heart has been transformed by the gospel is going to be one who cares for the needs of others. A person who doesn't care for the needs of others reveals that their heart is not right with God. Thirdly, third principle here, the one who pursues materialism abuses the poor. Secondly, the one who abuses the poor condemns his own soul. And then thirdly, the one who condemns his own soul has rejected God's word. Moses, or Abraham, says to the rich man, verse 31, they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they, they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus tells the Pharisees, the law and the prophets were until John. The good news has been preached. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The person who rejects God's word condemns one's own soul as one decides to pursue a life of materialism instead of pursuing obedience to God. There was an editorial uh, last week also in the, the New York Times by a man named Kurt Anderson. I want you to listen to what Kurt Anderson says. Now, I disagree with, with some, of his, some of his applications here, but uh, we, we've talked before about the last four weeks we've been talking about sexuality and, and how a person that pursues certain aspects of sexuality is, is saying, you know what, I'm rejecting God's authority in my life. And what we've seen this morning is a person that's pursuing materialism is also rejecting God's authority. Listen to what Anderson says about this link. It's kind of an interesting idea. He says, what's happened politically, economically, culturally, and socially since the sea change of the late 60s isn't contradictory or incongruous. It's all of a piece. For hippies and bohemians, as for business people and investors, extreme individualism has been triumphant. Selfishness won. Uh, people on the political right have blamed the late 60s for what they loathe about contemporary life. Anything goes sexuality, cultural coarseness, and, and multiculturalism. But what the left and right respectively love and hate are mostly flip sides of the same libertarian coin minted around 1967. Thanks to the 60s, we are all shamelessly selfish. Now, I would argue this has been going on for much longer than the 1960s, right? But the human heart, as it comes into contact with God's authoritative word, must make a decision. Am I going to respond with repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I going to pursue the physical, the sensual materialism that my heart desires? Let's talk about application here. You see how it all begins, right? As we think through this process, the one who pursues materialism abuses the poor. The one who abuses the poor condemns his own soul. The one who condemns his own soul has rejected God's word. Now, you reverse it, right? What happens? We listen to God's word. Our soul is saved as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. It causes us to have a right heart, to treat the poor well, and to flee materialism instead of pursuing it. You see the reverse taking place? So what's the application? Number one, what does it begin with? It begins by listening to God's word. It means coming into contact with a parable like Luke, 19, Luke 16, 19 through 31 and saying, that's me. 
that's the tendency of, of my own heart. And then secondly, as we listen to God's word, secondly, we respond with repentance. We respond with repentance. Here's the path that I've been on. Here's been my tendency to pursue the things of this world and to love the things of this world. I'm going to turn from that. Now, you say, Daniel, tell me specifically, what does that look like? I don't know. Truthfully, that's been one of the hardest things I've struggled with this week because I've thought about this application of repentance from materialism. Austin and I were, were walking this morning. You know, we, there wasn't any Sunday school this morning. We got here a little bit early, and I, I said, let's, let's walk to, to CVS together. We walked down, got a little kind of a soft drink together and kind of walked back here, and, and uh, I, I said, I, I, I need some help with my sermon this morning. So I, ended up, I, said, I said, Austin, what, is, uh, what does it look like for you and me to, to turn from materialism, to turn from loving the things of, of this world? What does it look like for you, and what does it look like for me? And you know what? As we talk through that, the answers for him were different than the answers for me. The things that his heart struggles with and loving the things of this world are, are different than the things that, that I love in this world. And therefore, repentance for me looks different than it does for him. Remember this, people came to John the Baptist, soldiers and tax collectors and people. They come to him and say, okay, what do we do to repent? And he tells them different things. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, uh, what do I need to do? You know, and, and Jesus tells him, sell everything you have and give it, all away, give it all away to the poor. Then Paul tells Timothy, as he talks to him about how to minister to wealthy people in, in his congregation, he tells him not to not love, not take great comfort in the things of this world, to enjoy the things that they have, but to be generous with others. He doesn't tell him to tell them to, to give it all away. My point is that repentance is going to look different for each of us in this area. But as you think about areas in your own life, you know where your heart struggles with this. Or you need to pray and ask God to show you. For some of you, it's going to be clothing. For some of you, it's going to be your bank account and statements. that You've, You just take so much comfort in the fact that these digits, these these digits on a piece of paper or on a computer screen appear in this order, that there's a nine before a one or a, 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 there's four digits instead of three digits or whatever it is, you take a lot of comfort in that and you pursue it and your heart thinks about it. That's what you need to repent of. For some of you, it's, maybe it's, it's, it's food. For some of you, maybe it's, it's, it's uh, physical fitness. It can take so many different forms, this, this love of the material world, and what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to flee materialism. I can tell you great stories of people in our church who have done amazing things and how it's looked in their lives. Some people have, have given up uh, buying vehicles in order to, to give things to people. Some people have, have given up savings accounts in order to, to help out the church. Uh, some, I, mean, I could just tell you story after story of how this truth has taken root in people's lives and they've done amazing things as they're compass, their heart's desire compass, the needle has pointed toward God and away from the things of this world. You need to repent. You need to recognize that you live in a culture that as one pursues materialism results in abusing the poor, having one's heart turned away from the needs of others and on to those things that can bring pleasure to oneself, and that's not the heart of one who's been changed by the gospel. I can remember in youth group, there was a young lady who decided 
and that she wasn't going to, to purchase products from a certain company because of the way that they were treating uh, children in different countries. And, and people mocked her. You know, other people in the youth group mocked her for, for taking that, that stance. You and I live in a culture, as we pursue material things, that abuses the poor and takes greater light and greater comfort in the fact that we get things at a cheap price and we do so in, in ways that, that defraud others of good standards of living. Now, this is a complicated issue. I don't want to open a whole can of worms here, but I'm saying the person who's a believer, these things trouble them, and they think through them. They, they, they ask God to give them wisdom in how they can live in a culture that's so encumbered with immorality and materialism that they can love others and repent in these areas. Flee materialism and be generous. The heart of a person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a heart that is generous. And as we encounter need, as we see the, the poor people in our world, we're not going to live behind these, these gated communities that don't allow us, to, these, these figuratively gated communities that don't, don't allow us to know the needs of the poor, but we're going to be aware of the global needs of other human beings and meet those needs. We see the tragic end of materialism here in these verses. And what we see is that the one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say, I despise materialism and I love my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words here that you've given to us. And I pray for wisdom among this group as we think through how to apply it. God, save our souls from materialism that that threatens our eternal salvation. Help our hope not to be in the things of this world, but help our, our hope to be in your Son, Jesus Christ, alone for our salvation. For us to trust in him alone, for you to be our desire, our great treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.